Now we don't have any value. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Death Sentence. It is I, Eden. What just happened is that I tried to record an episode with Langdon on Brian Catling's earwig. And that's still coming up, we're still going to do it, but Langdon had some computer issues, which resulted in him hilariously sounding like a robot, which will maybe make use of in the future, who knows. Uh, but we could not uh, complete that episode, so we had to reschedule it. But I'm already fired up and the microphone is on and all that good stuff. So I decided to finally do one of the solo episodes that I have been thinking a lot about. And it's uh, taken me a long time to do because it's kind of different than the other solo episodes that I've done in the past and different from anything that we've done on the Deaf Sentence podcast. And uh, the timing was kind of ruined for me. Uh, you, you, you'll understand when I when I tell you what it is, which is right now. So J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, you might have heard of him, arguably the most famous fantasy writer to have ever existed. You could argue whether he is a fantasy writer because kind of like Meshuggah, for example, he sort of not invented because obviously there were people before him uh, writing fantasy. We we covered one of them, Hope Mirlis, but also T.H. White, and you could argue of uh, Jules Verne and, and other um, proto-fantasy writers. So he didn't invent fantastical writing, but he definitely is the one voice, there's a pun in there, um, that solidified the genre's main tropes. Yeah, of course, this introduction is not going to be long because you all know who he is or was, you could Google him, and there have been countless words written about his influence on Dungeons and Dragons, um, of course, then via the films on the uh, silver screen and what is considered acceptable or worthy of being uh, made into movies. Um, and then also a lot of stuff about his politics, which are more complicated than a lot of people will want you to um, realize the, the conservative parts of his politics, the not-so-conservative part of his politics, stuff around gender and um, history and so on and so forth. So this is not uh, an episode about Tolkien. There are many podcasts out there that talk about Tolkien, um, especially in the recent year, and that's where my timing comes in, because of the Rings of Power. So... My all-time Tolkien favorite book is not hard to guess for anybody listening to this podcast or who knows me personally because I am a huge nerd and therefore The Silmarillion is my favorite work by um, Tolkien. Uh, by the way, my second favorite work is The Fall of Arthur, not one of the Lord of the Rings um, books, but his take on the final chapter of um, Arthur's life, which even though he never finished it, is a very beautiful piece of poetry which really showcases Tolkien's command of um, Middle English. Um, and then my third uh, favorite work by him is um, his translation of The Green Knight, which I think is marvelous. And yes, then Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and 
a lot of the really good stuff that that he wrote. Um, so, the Silmarillion uh, is my favorite work by him, and probably one of my favorite books of all time. I own multiple editions, including a first edition, uh, which was purchased for me by a very good friend of mine from Heavy Blog, Noyen, and the Fifty Years edition, which I will be using um, today, albeit uh, very economically. You, you'll see why in a second. Um, and therefore, I was guardedly excited for the Rings of Power. Uh, why excited, first of all? Because I believe that the Silmarillion has some truly fantastic stories, as good, if not better, than the Lord of the Rings. And I was excited to see a lot of them uh, being brought to life. You, you could choose so many of them, right? Uh, the Flight of the Noldor, Numenor, uh, the Battle of Southern Flame, um, of course, Gilgalad and his escapades, um, the fall of Nagarthond, um, Gondolin, of course, and so on. And initially, the um, the way that the show was pitched was that each episode would actually be a story uh, set in the world of The Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, filling in the blanks of many of the events that were only hinted at during the movie as they are hinted at during the book. We'll get to that in a second. But instead, what we got is um, a serialized uh, story focused on a specific event. Um, and in my eyes also, uh, like they chose a really weird time to focus on. Right? It's not like around any of the major events. It's all a build-up, which is one of the things that really bothered me about the first season. As you might be able to tell, I did not enjoy it um, very much. And that goes back to the guardedly part of guardedly excited. Right? Like, as all of us, we are... I am tired of franchises, and I think that the automatic search for the next franchise after the Game of Thrones um, and Marvel and, and stuff like that um, actively hurts a lot of stories that I would like to see adapted for the TV or the um, theater. I, again, to, to stress, I think a Silmarillion adaptation could be great, but not if it stems from this desire to tell another epic tale and have like a multi-season uh, show that will make the studio uh, a bunch of money, right? And, and you could say that I'm naive and that will never happen, but I disagree. Um, Amazon Studios, for example, has made some really good TV, like really good TV. They they made um, Jason Siegel's Dispatches from Elsewhere, which is, I think, a phenomenal piece of, of TV and storytelling, as well as the later seasons of The Expanse, which Amazon picked up, um, uh, the Boys and, and many other shows. So it, it was not outside of the realm of possibility that the Rings of Power would be successful, but it was not. And we, we could go into a deep discussion of why it wasn't successful and there are many um, answers from the uh, some of the casting choices to the um, you know some of the additions that they made. And again, I don't mind additions or deductions from the originals. I'm not like fanatically you know, religious about Tolkien that I have to have every single word and, and, and plot point the same. But the additions that they did make, like elves needing Mithril to live and all that nonsense, um, was bad. Uh, and then it had pacing problems and a bunch of other stuff. Some some parts were good, like the Halfords were brilliant and Numenor's depiction was really good. The Sildur was good, um, as well as his father and the rest of that storyline. But yeah, then everything... Oh, Elrond was also good, and the dwarves, of course. But then everything around Linden and, and, and uh, Galadriel was just abysmal. And, and most of all, the story didn't do a good job of capturing the main theme that I love Tolkien for and that I love the Peter Jackson uh, films for. 
and that is the sense of a disappearing world. Right? If you think about Tolkien's work, and of course this is not an original thought, it's been written about endlessly, it tells a story of decline. Right? It begins from the void with um, Iluvatar, the, the one being that, that creates um, Arda out of, out of nothing, and the glory of the music and the um, creation of the of Iluvatar, as well as with the Valar who accompany him. By the way, I'm not going to go into all these terms. This is not like a talking podcast, so if you're not sure what these things mean, just Google them. Um, it goes from that glory to the fallen state of affairs in which the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit begin. Right? The world is constantly eroding, and more and more beauty disappears um, from it as time goes by. Of course, there is the promise of revitalization and restitution, um, in the form of prophecies of the return of the king and, and stuff like that, and the basically the re-enchantment of um, the world, right? Magic slowly seeps away, slowly declines, and goes to the in, uh, inaccessible um, west, and less and less of magic is left in Middle-earth. Uh, now, of course, again, not an original thought, this was Tolkien writing about our reality, right? Our world and how he saw things. As someone who was well-versed through his um, you know, trade as a professor of languages, well-versed in the myths of the peoples of Europe, um, he was focused on this, again, this idea of the disenchantment of, of the world after the Industrial Revolution. And of course, the Industrial Revolution prefigures in the books several times. Um, chiefly amongst its villains like Saruman, Sauron, and, and Melkor as well, were industry, pollution, and um, wicked creation, sort of like unbridled science, um, aimed to rob the world of any peace and, and beauty and nature that might still exist within it. And he was writing this in the context of mid-20th century um, England with uh, the two wars, with the acceleration of its industrial development, with the expand the population boom and the expansion of its cities, um, and its uh, you know absolute disregard for um, nature, uh, forests, um, animals, and and much else. So, okay, why am I talking to you about this, and and what really drew me to um, to this episode. So I want to focus on one page from the Silmarillion, specifically from the Akalabeth, which is the story of the fall, the rise and fall of Numenor. And the reason I'm doing this episode is to exercise this page from within me, because ever since I read it for the first time, it has been haunting me. And I haven't seen anyone really talking about um, the eight years contained therein. I think this page, which is, by the way, in my edition, and I think in other editions as well, appears in different font, So, and it's the last page of the Akalabeth, so it's very clearly some sort of um, postscript. It contains a lot of the um, motivations for Tolkien to write the Silmarillion, and because the Silmarillion is the underlying strata of the rest of the works, the entire project... I think beyond that, it's just a very beautiful passage and a very weird one 
It also contains a lot of Tolkien's religious undertones, which I think is interesting. You know, famously, he was friends with C.S. Lewis, and they had a lot of arguments about how overt religious influences should be in the text, and Tolkien used to err, well, not used to, he, he most often erred on the side of um, subtlety. Uh, but here, I think some of his religious ideas um, seep through to the text. And the last reason is that it captures exactly what I found missing from the Rings of Power and what I love about Tolkien so much, which is, as I said, the melancholy and um, sense of of loss. The world escaped me because I'm, I'm trying to talk about something very subtle because this melancholy always has the promise of, like I said, restitution and, and resurrection um, in it, right? It is a sort of hopeful melancholy. And you can see it in Lord of the Rings as well, if you've just read that or watched the movies, right? Like the whole uh, passages before Helm's Deep, you know, how how can the men stand against such evil and the ideas that there is all the idea that there is always hope, um, and that even in the darkest of moments, um there there is hope for us to to rise above and so on. And so so that's a very well cited example, right? Uh or often cited example. And I want to give you um a different one. And then at the, at the outset, before we dive into the actual passage, um, just to highlight how well it's actually written and how beautifully it's written word by word and not just as a concept. Okay, so w- w- what I'm going to do is this segment in, in the book is divided into three parts, right? three paragraphs, which very um, clearly each one of them contains one idea, of course, on the same theme, but, but one idea of the theme. Um, and I'm just going to read each passage in full. Uh, it's a few lines each, so if you don't like to hear me read, then you can maybe skip each one of them. Um, and then we're going to discuss the ideas contained therein, because I think they are very interesting. Okay? Just to situate you, as I said, we are at the um, very end of the tale of Numenor that has drowned beneath the ocean. Uh, I mean, it is literally also called Atalante, so obviously Tolkien was um, referring to the story of Atlantis here. Uh, of course, it drowns because they try to uh, shackle Sauron instead of giving him up to the valor, as they should have, and they pay for their temptation. And that is the last co- uh, nail in the coffin of men as they were before the Third Age, where the Lord of the Rings opens. It's like the final decline, which leads to the starry state of affairs um, that we see in the beginning of Lord of the Rings. Okay, so that's where we're situated as far as the meta story goes. And uh, let's get started. Among the exiles, that is the people who left um, Numenor before it drowned, many believed that the summit of the Meneltarma, the pillar of heaven, was not drowned forever, but rose again above the waves, a lonely island lost in the great waters, for it had been a hallowed place. And even in the days of Sauron, none had defiled it. And some there were of the seed of Yerendil that afterward sought for it, because it was said among law masters that the far-sighted men of old could see from the Meneltarma a glimmer of the deathless lands. For even after the ruin, the hearts of the Dunedain were still set westwards. And though they knew indeed that the world was changed, they said, Avalon is vanished from the earth, and the land of Amman is taken away. And in the world of this present darkness they cannot be found. Yet once they were, and therefore they still are, in true being and in the whole shape of the world, as at first it was devised. 
So a few uh, ideas that we need to um, explore here from Tolkien's uh, Legendarium. First of all, and the most important one is uh, the, the um, Earendel. Uh, Earendel is the um, wife, or sorry, the husband of um, an elf, uh, but he is uh, a man, a man who decides to um, sail westwards and ask the Valar, wait, is he a man? You know, the legendarium is so big that I'm like doubting myself because I don't know everything by heart. Yeah, half-elf, sorry. Um, so this half-elf um, refuses to um, accept the fact that the Valor have retreated and if they are just gods as they claim they are, they will um, help the Middle-earth against the tyranny and the awfulness of the remnants of... Um, you know, the evil that has uh, taken root there, right? The Valor have retreated and they have left Middle-earth to their um, devices and they have set this kind of like uh, girdle around their land, Aman, the dying land. Um, and no one may, may come and go except for the elves that are allowed um, to go back. Yarendel uh, will not accept this and he decides to um, sail back to uh, Valor and entreat the gods to break their um, silence and break their isolation um, and help Middle-earth to, um, you know, save it, basically, right, against uh, Morgoth, the, the evil Valor. Because of his entreaty, one of the be most beautiful passages in the Silmarillion, um, the Valor have a change of heart and they go back and save um, Middle-earth for Morgoth and they finally... Um, destroy him in the War of Wrath. <clears throat> now, Yarendel has been compelled uh, to many, uh, by many, sorry, to um, Jesus Christ and Moses and other such biblical figures. And while I think that is definitely uh, a valid comparison, you know, half-elf, half-man, half kind of like Christ was half-God, well, not half-God, the Catholics don't come after me, please, but, you know, the Son of God and Son of Man, um, and this idea of an individual who, uh, you know, makes a plea before the gods and um, saves humanity by his actions and his uh, empathy and so on. But I also think that Yarendel, um, while not a self-insult, is the closest we get in the series to a character that Tolkien identified with. And I think this passage shows why. And specifically, the sentence, Avalon is vanished from the earth and the land of Ammon is taken away, yet once they were and therefore they still are. This is the, a sentence capturing the entire impetus that Tolkien has for even writing these books. Right? Famously, Tolkien said that he set out to write the authoritative English mythology. If you think about the Greek mythology or the Roman mythology and even other European um, peoples have a more canonically hygienic or um, well-settled mythology than the um, English people do. And Tolkien set out from his knowledge, of course, because he was very well-versed in all of these texts, to build um, a mythology. And that's why the Undying Lands are called Avalon um, and so on, because it is, again, of course, supposed to invoke Arthurian myth. But but why did Tolkien want to create a mythology for the English? Why did he think it was a worthwhile project? 
exactly because of what he says here in this paragraph, um, that yet once they were and therefore they still are. This idea that the past is not something which is dead, is not a distant idea which can only be read um, about, but also something that can literally be experienced. And through this experience that comes to us through books and, and other stories and so on, um, we can recapture some of the things that were worthwhile about the past. right? And this is where the politics of Tolkien and their subtlety becomes um, relevant because, you know, as a leftist or any leftist listening to this, that's kind of, that rubs us the wrong way, right? It sounds like a very, not even conservative, but reactionary sort of idea that we have to go back. But if you notice what Tolkien is saying and you take it into the context of the rest of what he wrote, he does not think that we can go back. And the fourth age that comes after the events in Lord of the Rings is not a return, and you can add that V if you want, right, for the Twitter meme for return. It, it's not the past come alive again because the elves are gone and, and the gods are gone. They do not ungirdle Valinor. But through the reconnection to the past, through the reconnection to what was good and just and glorious about the past, a new system is born, right? And men inherit, you know, Middle Earth and they build a more just and stable and peaceful society. Now, of course, that society is monarchical and there's like a, a quote of Tolkien, a lot of people talk, talk about it like, he was a, a, how did you call it, an anarchist, monarchist, whatever that means. I can sort of understand, like, you know, the law um, between people that's based on honor and uh, allegiance and so on, rather than um, hierarchy or a book of law. And the king is more like a judge, a good judge that oversees disputes and stuff like that, um, stuff that I less, um, you know, I'm less sympathetic to. Um, but this paragraph does a really good job of kind of like distilling this idea that the past is still accessible to us and we still might learn a lot from it, which, going back to like the leftist critique, is true. I think a lot of the problems of the left arise from this idea that going back is somehow inherently bad, right? And return, um, looking at the past is essentially wanting to return to it. You hear that a lot with how people criticize you know, thoughts about the USSR and so on. Oh, you, you want Stalin to come back or you want to do things all over again. It's like, no, understanding what worked there, what went wrong, what went right and so on is super important to our current efforts. And then on the flip side, and this is what Tolkien, I think, would say as well, people who do sink too much into the past and long for a return of the world that once was, um, he would also tell them, sorry, that's not possible. Or at least that's what I wanted to say with my books. You can't actually go back. You can't actually bring the past back. And this is the next paragraph. Let me read it to you. For the Dunedain held that even mortal men, if so blessed, might look upon other times than those of their body's life. And they longed ever to escape from the shadows of their exile and to see in some fashion the light that dies not. For the sorrow of the thought of death had pursued them over the deeps of the sea. Thus it was that great mariners among them would still search the empty seas, hoping to come upon the isle of Meneltarma, and there to see a vision of things that were. But they found it not, and those that sailed far came only to the new lands, and found them like to the old lands, 
and subject to death. And those that sailed furthest set but a girdle round the earth and returned weary at last to the place of their beginning, and they said, All roads are now bent. Right? So the idea here is that as much as we long for a world where death does not exist, and here death is not meant to be understood just as physical death, and Tolkien talks about this many times in the books, but also a death of the spirit, a, a sadness so deep that you might as well be dead from it, like the sorrow that can overcome elves instead of their bodily demise. Um, when we look for a place where this death does not exist, that is when we reach back towards an enchanted time, towards a magical time, and we try to go there, we try to literally return there as these um, mariners are trying to return, we find ourselves here on the round earth, right? One of the weirdest parts about these segments is that um, he plays around with flat and round earth. Like before the valor completely retreated, the earth was still flat and the roads were not bent, as we'll see in the last paragraph. But now the world is round. Of course, this is again a dig at science and the disenchantment of the world, as Tolkien see it, that science brings to the, to the world. It's not that the world is not round. The world is round in this paragraph as well. The Valar made it round. But that the understanding of the world is round and the insistence on seeing it only as round holds some sort of clinical distance from reality. Now, he's not saying, you know, the earth is actually flat. What he's saying is that we filled in all the gaps where it used to say terra incognita or here be dragons. And by the way, we filled them, and, and this, is, as you'll note, is a journey to the West that these people undergo. We filled them with colonialism, right? We filled them with, with the scientism that enables, um, you know, the extractivist underpinnings of, of colonialism. I have to, I've spoken about this on the podcast many times where you have to catalog all the trees in order to cut them down. You have to understand all the rocks in order to know where to mine and which hills to blow up and so on. Um, so Tolkien is saying a lot of the same things. The pursuit after a time which no longer exists should be um, a metaphorical pursuit, an intellectual pursuit, a, a movement of the mind, of, of, the, of the imagination and not an actual searching for societies and ways of life that have disappeared. Because if we do that, we'll actually wind up right where we started, right? Because we are still thinking about things through the rational, scientist, um, objective, clinical way of thought. Instead, what he's advocating for here is an acceptance of that uh, sorrow, of death, of that sadness, um, and, and it's reality that does not preclude necessarily imagination, exploration, and hope. Okay, and, and, and we're going to see that in the third paragraph, which I'll read to you now. Thus in after days, what by the voyages of ships, what by lore and starcraft, the kings of men knew that the world was indeed made round, and yet the Eldar were permitted still to depart and to come to the ancient west and to Avalon, if they would. Therefore, the lawmasters of men said that a straight road, note, straight road is capitalized, must still be for those that were permitted to find it. And they taught that while the new world fell away, the old road and the path of the memory of the West still went on, as it were a mighty bridge invisible that passed through the air of breath and of flight 
which were bent now as the world was bent, and traversed ill men, which flesh unaided cannot endure, until it came to Tolerasea, the lonely isle, and maybe even beyond, to Valinor, where the valor still dwell and watch the unfolding of the story of the world. And tales and rumors arose along the shores of the sea concerning mariners and men forlorn upon the water who, by some fate or grace or favor of the valor, had entered in upon the straight way, again capitalized, and seen the face of the world sink below them, and so had come to the lamplit quays of Avalon, or verily to the last beaches on the margin of Amman, and there had looked upon the white mountain, dreadful and beautiful, before they died. So first of all, what a writer. It's so beautiful. It's, it's written so well and so intricately yet simply at the same time. But the, what Tolkien is trying to tell us is, this is why I wrote these books. Like the Eldar, and there's been lots of ink spilled on how they're like the British or the English or whatever. I don't think they are. I think the Eldar are good people, as Tolkien sees them. Good people that do a lot of unjust things and have hubris and um, rage inside of them, but still uh, people we should aspire to be. And, and what, what he's saying here is, you notice that I emphasize that the memory of the West, which is the enchanted land, the undying land, where magic still exists, is the road back to the things that were good about that time. Some individuals might actually go back, and we can debate what that means, and, and maybe you know, a weak point in my uh, theory is that he does say that some actually go back, but I think he's more making this idea of like, again, mythologizing and the hero who can go past what most people can do. But most of us need to follow the only straight road which is not L and it's not C because those road are, roads are bent, as he says in this paragraph, but follow the road of memory and time and mythology back to those lands. And it's not just Avalon. And, and no, there are two checkpoints, right? Avalon, the Lonely Isle, Eresea, but then behind it, Valinor. So Avalon and Eresea and, and the Lonely Isle and all those places, they are the myth. Right? They are the stories. They are, you go back there by reading the Arthurian cycles, by reading Beowulf, which Tolkien also translated, the Green Knight, um, Chanson de Roland, and all these tales, and non-Western tales as well, by the way. We, we don't have to leave um, only Western canon in place. Like when you read the Three Kingdoms, um, or uh, you know, uh, Japanese mythology, or, or Buddhist mythology, or what have you, or, or, or Islamic tales, which are many and, and beautiful, um, the, the Shahanama, the Book of Kings, and so on, um, you are still exercising the same sort of um, gesture, which is looking at a time that no longer exists and looking at the ideas that it thought were good. And some you will discard, right? Because you read the Three Kingdoms and a lot of the things that they do there are morally reprehensible in your eyes. Um, but, but some of them are still good and still true. Now, beyond those myths lie all those things. It's almost like a platonic sort of divided line. I, I'm not going to unpack that now. You, you can Google it. But the things 
and then the shadow of the things, and then the ideas which govern the things, and then the, the ideas, I truth and beauty and knowledge and not the specific manifestations. So same thing here. There is our world, the myth, which um, has the refracted light of goodness and truth and justice and morality and so on, and then the place where those things actually exist, a place which, again, except for a few rare of us, none of us can actually access. But think about who Tolkien is in this, in this story, right? Because if myth is the lonely isle, it is um, Avalon, and, and, and the only way to go back there is for memory, then Tolkien is the shepherd. Tolkien is the navigator. Right? Tolkien is the one who is holding the door open or helping you tread that, that first step. Tolkien is Yerendil. Yerendil became sort of this patron saint of, of navigators and sailed the skies with his jewel on his brow becoming the evening star. That's how Tolkien sees himself and that is the motivation for writing the books. He is trying to make accessible myth so that myth will remind people of ideas that are frowned upon in a modern, clinical, capitalist, ob quote-unquote objective, um, scientism-inflected society, and, and to remind them of things like love and honor and duty and beauty and um, bravery and so on. So that those ideas themselves, the land of the Valar, the undying lands, the everlasting light of truth and beauty and justice and so on might coexist. Not coexist, sorry, that's not what I meant to say. Um, Re-exist, right? Be here once again with us, or at least the light will refract on us. Of course, there are a million criticisms of this that have been um, discussed over and over again, like how naive it is and how, um, how problematic it is and what sort of political uh, structures might flourish inside of these ideas. It's not an accident that fascists love Tolkien and it's something that we all of us Tolkien fans have to contend with. But for every criticism, there's also some merit to what Tolkien tried to do. And I think that merit is beautifully captured in these paragraphs, which I have not yet heard anyone talk about or analyze or mention. And if you know of someone like that, of an essay or a podcast, please send it my way. But I thought it was worthwhile to bring them to your attention. Um, and maybe, you know, enliven or create some sort of discourse around what these paragraphs mean and how they help us reinterpret um, Tolkien's work. I mentioned that I would also talk about Tolkien's religious ideas, but honestly, I feel like this episode is long enough and we could go on and on. But think about the um, religious connotation of the ideas which he brings forth here and um, you know, this the straight road, which is capitalized, and the reason I emphasize that is because it sounds like a virtue, right? It sounds like a tenant um, rather than just a place. Um, it sounds like the straight and narrow road, right? Um, it sounds like a Christian concept of um, virtue ethics, if you'd like. Um, but I feel like I would need a, a whole new, another episode on this and also to do like a year's research to, to feel like I have the authority to talk about these things. So I'll leave it as an exercise to you to... Um, read this with a religious um, lens on. Um, and that's it. I really do encourage more people to read The Silmarillion. Um, it is not an easy read, especially the first few chapters. 
that are written in very archaic English on purpose, of course. But it is an extremely beautiful piece of work, which, like all good history, makes the things that follow it more connected, more beautiful, more pregnant with meaning. Like reading The Lord of the Rings after reading The Silmarillion is one of the best things that I've ever done for myself. It was just wonderful because it took this already extremely good and extremely well-written um, piece of work and made it even better because it gave it depth. It gave it a past. Um, it gave it uh, a sense of context. So if you're so inclined, read The Silmarillion um, and then maybe even read The Lord of the Rings. And then watch Rings of Power and, and you'll you'll see why I think it is a pain imitation of these concepts and ideas and patterns of writing. Um, and that's it. I, I want to play you some um, music, of course. And I think I'll go with uh, something from the new Wilderness album. Now, Wilderness, spell Wilderness with a double V. Very clever, I know. It looks like a W. I don't know what black metal has with a V. I mean, I do know it stems from Latin and it looks cool and connects to like elements that the genre would like to um, highlight. But of course, that's not how you use the Roman V, which was just a U. Um, although I, I guess you could say that's a double, that's a double U, right? That's where it came from. In any case, um, these guys, well, it's one person, um, Wildil, that's his uh their stage name, I guess. I, I don't know um, what they identify as. Um, there's also a, a guest spot from the vocalist of Ashes Remain, but Wilder uh, plays guitar, bass, and then also Hildegardi and Nickel Harper and vocals and production and everything on this, um, I guess you'd call it solo project. And it's one of my favorite, favorite um, folk, black metal um, groups and releases, this new one, of the past few years. The project released Path um, this year on the 10th of February and it's just an achingly, achingly beautiful um, album that also speaks to a lot of the themes that we try to tackle here um, on this episode, right? Because if you think about it, folk music also conjures the past and conjures, you know, the way things were and so on. I'm going to play the second track, Namir, um, which opens with some beautiful acoustic guitars, but then gets quite heavy down the line. And that's it. Please enjoy um, Wilderness's Namira, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. 